Welcome to The Whole Marketer, where we look at the holistic skills, the technical skills, soft skills, leadership skills, and personal understanding that marketers of today need to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow. We're here to ensure that marketers feel supported and empowered to have successful and fulfilling careers and lives as a whole. Hello, and welcome to The Whole Marketer podcast. episode is a technical skill, which is focused on an area of latest thinking. And shortly, we welcome today's guest, Ben Carter, onto the podcast to discuss 3D or three-dimensional marketing. Before I do, I want to reiterate why it's so important that in every season of the Whole Marketer podcast, we look to understand new or latest thinking in our profession. So you as marketers can make an informed decision, whether that is an approach that you want to bring into your own personal practice or into the of your teams. Today's guest is Ben Carter. Ben is the Global Chief Customer and Marketing Officer of CarWow, tasked with revolutionizing how consumers buy and sell cars. Prior to joining CarWow in October 2022, he has worked for a number of UK's biggest digital businesses in executive marketing roles, helping them drive growth, build their brands and accelerate their digital transformation, including Purple Bricks, Just Eat, Betfair and Not on the High Street. He is also chair of the Lilly Foundation, a charity dedicated to finding a cure and raising awareness of mitochondrial disease, and is director of Women in Football, a non-for-profit organisation that is focused on making football a more acceptable place for women on and off the pitch to work, play and support. Ben, welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. Thank you, Abby. Great to be here and happy Monday morning to you. Happy Monday to you too. So as you know, we always start with a big juicy question. And today's big juicy question is, what is three-dimensional marketing to you? Three-dimensional marketing for me is how all great marketers think. So I think it's very, very easy in a world of a huge amount of channels and many opportunities to get your message out there that marketeers sometimes create a message and they put it on one channel and they feel like that's it, it's live, job done, move on to the next thing. Actually, three-dimensional marketing is all about integrated marketing. It's about utilizing every channel. It's about nuancing that message, but depending on which channel you're using. But it's really about making sure that there's consistency. And if I go right back to when I first became a marketeer, way back when in the early 2000s. God, I sound old. The whole reason I got into it was that I felt that consumers don't discriminate by channel. They see a brand in many, many different environments, but for them, that is the brand. And so it's really important how that brand shows up. And for the consumer, they don't really care whether that's through a TV ad, whether that's through a paid search listing, a social ad, or an email. They expect the brand to show up. And so Right through my career, I've been really clear with all the teams I've worked with is is to make sure that when we have an asset, we push that asset out across as many channels as possible. But we really maximize that asset as well, because obviously, it's very easy in marketing to spend money and ultimately to waste money. And it's, it's much more hard to really drive that return. And one of the ways of really driving that return is to maximize that asset as much as possible, to create a storyline around that asset and really to make sure that that asset appears in as many different places as consistently as possible. 
So it's a way in which we communicate or drive communications to our consumers. Yes, exactly. We talk a lot, don't we, about what will AI mean for jobs in the future and for marketeers and things like that. And I think it's very tempting now to use technology to push a message out there. And as I said, just to assume that message is live and move on. And I call that one-dimensional marketing. Obviously, one of the big challenges that all marketeers face is hiring amazing talent. And unfortunately, I'd say that people who are not amazing talent are people who just rely on one-dimensional marketing and they just think that they've done their job, they put something live, they've moved on. And actually, it's about, right, it's live. Now, how do we make it grow arms and legs? And again, one of the reasons why I love marketing, and particularly on the digital side of things, is that you can make a decision on a Monday morning, get something changed by Monday lunchtime, and by Tuesday morning, you know how it's forming and you can make some changes as well off the back of that performance. And I think that's where smart marketing and three-dimensional marketing comes into it, which is the job is never done. It's always about where do you take that asset next? How does that asset fit into the broader campaign? And how, as I said, does it build a storyline as part of the campaign? So it's a way for us to brand build by maximizing those assets and really, as you said, giving them arms and legs to leverage and maximize the investment that you've made in building those assets across multiple channels. But it's also about making sure that you have consistency as part of that long-term memory structures brand building. And it's also about making sure that you have those consistency on those channels that you've selected to reach your customers or consumers. Is that correct? That is exactly it. So let me give you an example. (laughs) When we were at Just Eat, we sponsored the X Factor. Those of you who who may be quite young may not know what the X Factor is or remember it, but it actually was a TV show that regularly attracted 12 to 15 million viewers on a Saturday night. It was a classic reality format identifying obscure talent singers who it then made famous, basically. Probably one of the most famous acts to come from it was One Direction. Anyway, in 2016, 2017, Just Eat were the sponsors of the X Factor. And the reason we did the partnership was that we really wanted to acquire a new and more family-based audience. And what better combination than to get a food delivery business alongside the biggest show on TV on a Saturday night. But the big, big thing about Just Eat was that Just Eat powered thousands of restaurants around the country. So we connected people who wanted to order food from restaurants across the country. And we wanted to use X Factor as a way of telling that story. So what we did was we actually ran auditions called Chef Factor, where we got real waiters, waitresses, chefs, runners, pot washers, you name it in restaurants, delivery men, delivery women, uh, you name it in restaurants, we got them to audition. And they actually then featured in the idents of the sponsorship, which was a really, really powerful way of bringing to life the message that actually Just Eat was not just a faceless app connecting you to a faceless restaurant, but it was an app connecting you to the most famous local independent restaurants in your area. That was a really rich way of doing it. But in the 3D example, the whole Chef Factor piece actually became a social series in its own right. We ran a national talent contest to find those people. And then ultimately, the end game was to put them, as I said, onto live TV as well. They also fronted all of the emails that went out, all of the paid social that went out. So it's a really good example of taking one asset, namely the X Factor, not a cheap asset at all, and then bringing it to life across as many different touch points as possible so that we got that consistency that I was talking about earlier so that a consumer started to recognize that wherever they were when they saw the X Factor, they would think of Just Eat. 
I love that. And it's interesting, you started to give me the case study when you're talking about just eating the X factor. I jumped straight to that makes perfect sense, you know, that at home takeaway occasion during the X factor, you know, attaching yourself to a big moment that's already established in culture and then applying just eat to it. But actually, as I was listening, what I'm hearing is not only have you made that partnership and that makes sense on a strategic perspective, but actually how do we use that partnership to develop other creative assets that bring more of an emotional story to life that will resonate and live longer. Exactly. And it came full circle because we actually had some of the talent who were featuring in the items. They then became local celebrities in their own right. Even to the point that we had then the, the talent who was appearing on the X Factor, they would then go and meet them in their local towns and cities as part of their campaigning, which was just absolutely brilliant. So national and local level. Yes, exactly. So when we were talking offline about three-dimensional marketing, you described to me almost like the phases in the approach, which is around amplification, integration, continuous optimization. Can you explain a little bit more about each of those phases for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd actually flip it one. I'd say it's integration first and then amplification, then optimization. So integration, as I said, it's not just about taking one piece of creative, one campaign asset, putting it live in one channel. Obviously, it's about going back to the basis of marketing. So it's about who are you trying to target? What's the message you're trying to land? And what do you want them to do with that message? Then it's about aligning the channel mix to those objectives. But it's thinking in a way of where now as a marketeer, we are exposed to so many different channels. What is the right mix for what I'm trying to achieve here? And also, it's not just about the paid channels, but it's also around the the owned channel. So obviously, whether that's CRM, whether that's on site, whether that's even something as oblique as, say, the IVR, when you're calling the call center, how do I I integrate this asset as much as possible? And also thinking around the earned side. So really important. I think some marketers sometimes forget the importance of PR and how to use PR as part of your integrated mix as well. Then once you've got that integrated mix, how do you start to amplify? How do you introduce storylines to it? Even if it's just a trading campaign and it's a sale. So one-dimensional marketing is we've launched a sale. Three-dimensional marketing is every day telling customers about what's in that sale. What are the things that are selling really well? What are the new entrants in the sale? What are the categories you want to push really hard? And then when it's time for the sale to end, There's only 48 hours left now, only 24 hours left now. So you're continually sweating those assets as hard as possible. And far too often I've seen in the past, well, I've put it live, it's done. It's like, no, 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 that's just the start. And then there's the optimization piece. So again, the joy of being in digital marketing is that you continually optimize. So you can throw a lot of different things at the wall and you then keep optimizing based on what you get back. So is that creative optimization? Is that messaging optimization? Is that audience optimization? So really 3D marketing is thinking about all of those three things all the time. And and for for me, every campaign has a storyline and a story arc that you need to follow. The job is never done. It continually seeking to further maximize the assets and to optimize it as much as possible. And Ben, as I'm listening to you, there is quite clearly some components that need to be in place for those that are listening going, yeah, we really need to move from being one dimensional where we take a message, we deploy it and we leave it and we don't go and do the review and the performance and optimizing all of those things that are sat listening going, yes, we need to be more like that, but probably starting to think, but do I have the ability to be responsive? Do I have that digital insight? Do we have the right agency partnership? You know, what are the things that those that are now getting really excited about 
adopting this approach would need to have in place in order to make that happen? I think it's a really fair challenge. I think great thing, though, is that channel to market, there are plenty of them. So again, you don't have to try and boil the ocean. You don't have to try and use every channel. So it's about using the channels that are within your gift. It's about having smart people who are willing to learn and willing to try. And also, it's about encouraging a culture of not being afraid to fail as well within the organization, to move fast, to build things, but to keep optimizing and to keep learning on that. This isn't about having huge amounts of budget or about having many, many agencies. It's just about a framework. And it's about how do I maximize what I've invested in? Because at the start of a campaign, you've probably got a creative platform, some sort of asset that you have invested in, whether that's in terms of you spent money on it, whether that's in terms of people have spent time on it, that has cost you something. And so it's just about really purely and simply, how do I sweat that hard as possible? My background, I'm not a classically trained marketeer. I was a journalist. And people often say to me, I don't really get how as a journalist, you became a marketeer. And my answer is, well, actually, being in marketing is very similar to being a journalist. It's about tailoring a story to a certain audience. And it's exactly the same in marketing. You're tailoring a message to a certain audience because you want that audience to do something. So I I would say to anyone who's worried about resource or about investment is about just think of you're telling a story, but you're telling a story to an audience. And that story doesn't stop just when the first chapter is published. There are other chapters of the book and there should be other chapters of the campaign. Now, how many chapters there are, what channels you use for those chapters, how rich you want to really make those chapters, then that's all down to the scope of investment or resource you've got. But I I don't think this is a case of if you're not a big brand or if you're not a big business, you can't do three-dimensional marketing. In fact, I would argue it's the opposite. I think Mm. sometimes big businesses slow down three-dimensional marketing because the huge amounts of bureaucracy and sort of levels that you've got to work through, whereas actually when you're small, you're agile and you're in control. I was feeling the same. I was feeling this feels almost a business that has to be able to have the data at their fingertips, you know, those Google analytics, that response to how that amplification on digital channels has worked, you know, so that they can be responsive and test and learn and almost have a culture that embraces that test and learn aspect as well. Totally agree. I'd also say, however, that on the flip side, people might be thinking, oh, well, hang on a minute, I'm not data driven, or I don't have people in the business who can really do that level of analysis. The data is part of it, absolutely. But ultimately, it's about thinking about Put yourself in the shoes of the consumer and think about how the consumer wants to be engaged and entertained by brands, but also think about how the consumer is subjected to so many messages that everywhere they go. So how do you create something that cuts through? And just putting something live and then moving on does not cut through. No, and it almost feels like there's a process within the process, which goes when you have got that asset and maybe there's been a creative process to develop that and maybe there's not. Mm. But even if you have got that, What's then the creative process you have internally that allows you to sit together and really ideate and go, right, what can we do with this? Where can we deploy this? How can we leverage this? What story can we tell? How can we deepen that emotional connection? And all the examples that you've given, which I don't know how often that happens, actually. I often see as you were mentioning earlier, those large organizations that might be using an agency structure that have come up to use the asset, you know, that they've developed as opposed to really thinking about all the different arms and legs, to use your analogy, this could have and different ways in which that could be deployed to deepen, richen and extend. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I think historically, 
actually organizations that have had a roster of agencies. So you've had your PR agency, your media agency, your creative agency. They haven't always played nicely. This type of marketing that we're talking about, it's the antithesis of what they want to do because fundamentally they want to have their own approach. And, and actually that's sometimes counter what the brand needs because the best agency partners I've worked with is where they're true partners. They're not precious. They're very happy to operate in their own lane. But equally, if you ask them to come up with something outside of their lane and everyone knows the rules of engagement, they will do that. So I'm not a believer in the view that the creative agency is the only agency who comes up with the big creative idea. I think that, that anyone can come up with a creative idea. And ultimately, the creative agency will develop that idea. Absolutely. There's nothing stopping the media agency coming up with it or the social agency or the PR agency. And where it doesn't work is when you've got those very, very limited remits and, frankly, clashes of culture and, and almost turf wars going on. And those turf wars are difficult to manage. You know, I'm thinking back to a few examples mm. in my head when, you know, you've mm -hmm. briefed an all agency structure and mm. you've given an allocation of budget. As you've just mentioned, people are fighting for the budget, not fighting for the right channel no. and the way in which it can be deployed and really thinking about the legs of different ideas and how if, you know, a certain allocation of budget was amplified, to use your terminology, how that actually would have greater impact than maybe some of the more classical approaches that they've adopted before when they've rolled out campaigns and certain other comm strategies as well. It's actually really depressing. It is really depressing. And, you know, it does feel a little bit like a family row is how I sometimes yeah. liken it to. It's like, why can we not all just be friends? You know, why can yeah. we all not just get on? We're all part of the same family and team. There's a massive culture play here, isn't there? In that... Yes. It's not only how you work with your agencies as an extension of, of your team and, you know, all to, to meet that common goal, whether that's a commercial goal, a market strategy objective, whatever that may be, a comms objective. It's about actually how do we do the right thing at the right time with the right investment and maximise it. And sometimes that get lost. Exactly. <laughs> but what's coming through to me is there is a real ways of working culture thing that needs to be at play here. So to your point, a culture about test and learn, adaption, not really being just staying in your lane, but really thinking about how this can work, but also allowing creativity within the teams that they don't think it has to just come elsewhere or from the in-house design team or in-house creative team. It, it can live and breathe from anywhere as long as it's allowing us to tell those stories, those stories and those chapters and allow us to build that emotional connection and that consistency to maximize the assets. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And really interesting. When I joined CarWow, so I've been here over a year now, just over a year, and I inherited a very, very siloed organization from a marketing perspective. So the performance team operated their own little bubble. They didn't work with the brand team. In fact, there was sort of real issues trying to get the performance team to use brand creative. The CRM team didn't really work with the performance team, et cetera, et cetera. And my whole thesis around three-dimensional marketing is that it only works when there are no silos in your marketing team. So sometimes the first thing to fix is actually how you're working as a marketing organization. Because again, where it works incredibly well is when you've got all of the different marketing teams coexisting and coalescing around one big idea and thinking about how do they make that big idea work within their channel. Where it really doesn't work is when you've got individual teams 
thinking solely about their channels and not thinking about the message or not thinking about the creative or not thinking about the campaign idea that they're trying to put out within that channel. And it might sound really, really obvious, but I've seen this time and time and time again in many of the organizations I've worked in. And it's incredibly depressing, but it's also incredibly fulfilling when you can finally get the teams thriving as one team and you really start to see... I mean, it wasn't like they didn't get on socially after work. They would go out drinking together, but just when it came to work, with each other they couldn't work with each other so actually when you do get that sort of dynamic happening it's a really really motivating thing that starts to happen and, and you really start to see amazing ideas come to life but actually you see performance working much much better so obviously one of the big historic debates has been the role of digital alongside brand and do you need a digital director or a brand director or do you need a CMO that's more digital leaning than brand leaning and I'm very much a unicorn in that I started in digital, but actually moved across into brand and as equally averse across both. But for me, fundamentally, performance works better when you invest in brands and performance works better when the performance team work with the brand team to sweat that creative as hard as possible and to, to make sure the message is the same. And again, that that consistency is there, which when you've got silos, that just does not happen. Space and time are the two things that are coming as themes in my head with this approach. Yeah. It's making space in the working week or in the process with that idea and how you can all sit with it and think about how you can bring that to life and allow it to have arms and legs. But then also the time to do that, because I see that being a common theme as to when things aren't deployed in an integrated way, because as you say, everyone's working on their own channel, particularly if they have in-house CRM team, PR teams, etc. They're very much on my schedule and what I'm looking to deploy at what time, as opposed to how do we take this idea and almost map the timeline about where and when we put these on each of the channels. So space and time, as you just said, and silos feels like two things that you have to have to adopt this approach. What else or what advice would you give to those that are going, yeah, we really want to do this. We have the same situation that Ben's describing, you know, we're working very siloed. It's hard for everyone to integrate behind that theme, that big idea. What advice would you give to marketers listening that want to adopt this 3D approach? Sounds really basic, but First of all, have a marketing calendar. Many organizations don't, but actually that calendar starts to then identify common points in the year when the channels need to start to work together. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you're running a marketing team, start to think about how do you break teams out of their silo. So that could be you have skip level catch-ups with some of those people in the team to understand sort of what their issues are. You then, one of the things I do is that we have a, a twice a year marketing away day. And in part of the afternoon, we will do a sort of like a co-working session where they're we basically put everyone in groups outside of their core teams. First of all, they've all got very similar challenges, but also they tackle those challenges together. So that really helps to develop, foster a sort of a, a much better working relationship. And the third thing that I've done as well is you identify advocates within each of the teams who you think actually may start to really buy into this approach. And they almost start to become, as I said, advocates for that approach and ambassadors of how you want to do it. But Fundamentally, it comes from really good communication. It comes from a structured plan. 
And also, doesn't matter how big you are as an organization, you need to make sure that your leaders who run those channels or run those teams are bought into it. Because if they're not, then what happens is that they'll sit with you and tell you, yeah, yeah, no, we'll go away and do this. And then actually what you see happening is the opposite, where they're not supporting that philosophy with their teams. In fact, they're being terrorists against that philosophy and actually causing you even more issues. So, which is why, obviously, when leaders go into new organizations, there is often a level of organizational change because obviously you want to be surrounded by people who are buying into your approach, but also who believe that they can thrive off the back of that as well. And if that's not a common dynamic, then it's incredibly hard. Great piece of advice. And Ben, I first met you, I think we worked out about six or seven years ago when you were giving (laughs) a talk, the marketing festival for Just Eat. I would love to hear the journalist who entered into marketing career highs and lows, please. Yeah, sure. So I think look, any career is based on an element of luck. Anyone who tells you otherwise, I would say, has not been on the roller coaster of career that certainly I have. So my career started out as a journalist covering the rise of the internet in 1999. And really, my career has charted the internet and then digital subsequent journey ever since. So I started out as a journalist, and then very quickly, after a few years of working in various trade magazines, including marketing, and also doing quite a lot of freelancing on the Media Guardian, I decided to go and set up my own digital consultancy. This was at the time that everyone was building websites, thinking that audiences would just come to them because they had a website. And what I realized in the focus of my consultancy was trying to, one, demystify digital. So this was in the early 2000s, but also to help businesses develop what I call digital signposts. So businesses were starting to think that digital was a, well, it was a new frontier, but because it was a new frontier, they had to do things differently. And they hadn't really grasped that actually, again, going back to my 3D point, that consumers don't discriminate by how they're engaging with a brand. Obviously, there's different things you can do digitally versus offline, but fundamentally, it's still a conversation with a brand. And so my whole consultancy was around how do we build these digital signposts to replicate what goes on from a brand point of view. And and it was really aligned to the sort of whole Byron Sharp philosophy of mental and physical availability. And I felt digital was a really, really useful way of starting to build those signposts, whether that's through content, whether that was through blogging, whether that was through creating amplified campaigns as well. So one of the first campaigns I worked on with AOL, where they ran a very big TV campaign asking, is the internet a good or a bad thing? And they showed the good and the bad of the internet. And my whole project that we worked on and and came up with was to create a blog, which sounded revolutionary at the time. This was in 2003, before anyone thinks that I'm really making something funny, where basically people could go on and debate whether the internet was a good or a bad thing. But also, again, similar theme to the 1D, 3D marketeer thing, we signed up a load of celebrity spokespeople ranging from Jarvis Cocker of Pulp through to Alistair Campbell, who at the time had just finished working for Tony Blair. So they all had very hugely important but contrary views on the internet. And it started a very big social discussion, both on and offline, of is the internet a good or a bad thing. So anyway, that was just a really great project that I worked on, carried on doing consultancy for a few more years, then started my in-house marketing career for a sports TV broadcaster called Satanta, where I went on an absolute roller coaster, having joined as head of digital. The business acquired the Premier League right and was VC-backed in the UK. 
and grew very, very quickly. And even at one point got a very, very significant bid from Disney to buy it, which the founders turned down, only for me to be the last employee there nine months later selling the database to ESPN for a pound. So that was a roller coaster. Then I went to Betfair, which was still is an online gambling website just in the early days of online gambling. Started out as European head of digital marketing, then basically eventually became digital director, launched their mobile business. Obviously, gambling via mobile is a huge, huge business in its own right now. But at that point, it was very, very early days. So so did that and absolutely loved that. And then went to Not on the High Street, which is a and still is a online marketplace, e-commerce online marketplace. Was marketing director there, really helped to drive that brand and grow that brand for a few years. Then to Just Eat, where that was my work home. Absolutely loved it. Was there for five years. When I joined, only 15% of the population had used food delivery online. And when I left, it was at 48%. And we really did not only build a category, but we built an amazing brand. And we had some amazing times doing it. But we also underpinned that with huge commercial success as well. So that really was a, a fantastic journey. Then I went to Purple Bricks. So as you can see, there's a theme throughout my career working for digitally disruptive businesses. Purple Bricks was disrupting the property, the estate agency landscape. Very, very hard post-COVID because there were very few houses on the market. Purple Bricks relies on listings. But I did that for a little bit. And then I went to Dunelm, which is a traditional retailer, which has, has developed a digital business in the last few years, mainly homewares and furniture. And I was there for a short stint until my role was scrapped as CMO on, on their exec. And then finally, landed at Carwow, where I am now, which is incredibly exciting. We're on a journey to become the online car changing destination. So we started off as a car review site about 14 years ago then moved to helping you find a new car by connecting you to dealers. And then in 21, we bought a business which now enables us to help you sell your car direct from your driveway. So in the UK, if you want to find a car or you want to sell your car, Carware is the place. And then wrapped around that, we have one of the world's biggest motoring YouTube channels, which has eight and a half million subscribers and a very big content business, which helps drive a huge amount of traffic to the website as well. So really exciting. I sit on the exec as chief customer and marketing officer. And we're really on a mission again to disrupt a industry, but very positively because we help dealers and car manufacturers reach high intent customers who want to buy or sell cars, which is obviously a huge market, but also a market that is um, still has been very slow to digitize and is now in a huge amount of transition, given especially the switch to electronic that's coming, a whole wave of new brands that are coming from China and Asia into the car market as well as a whole new introduction of different ways of transacting with a customer as well. So D2C, obviously direct consumer being one, subscription models being another. So CarWow is at the forefront of all of that. And as I said, we are building an incredibly exciting business, which I'm delighted to be a part of. So yeah, that's been my journey so far. <laughs> and on that journey so far, have there been key highs and lows? 
lots of highs, huge amounts of highs, right from when I was at Satanta to launching basically a, a rival to Sky featuring Des Lynam in a burger van. That was our first TV ad through to, as I said earlier, sponsoring the X Factor on Just Eat, but also launching mobile for Betfair, launching Betfair in New Jersey. Yeah, it, it, there's been, been so many highs. I genuinely feel marketing is the best job in the world. And the reason it's the best job in the world is no one year is the same, but also the amount of things you get to work on. And I remember saying to some of my team, my more junior members of the team at Just Eat when we sponsored X Factor, and they turned up to a meeting and they were like looking really like, oh God, here we go again, as if we're sponsoring it again. And I was like, guys, you will never sponsor a property like this again in your life. I can guarantee it. So this is absolutely massive. This is a dream for all of us. So like in five years time, 10 years time, you will look back on this and go, oh my God, I remember when we did that. I said, so just don't take it for granted, but equally enjoy every minute of it because mm. this is not normal life. Hanging out backstage with Simon Cowell and Robbie Williams is not normal life. And that's what sponsoring the X Factor was. And then in terms of lows, yeah, look, there's been several lows, but I, I also think that all the lows come with huge learnings. So one of the things I got badly wrong at Just Eat was that basically I was married to my job and subsequently led to my divorce, which was incredibly difficult personally. And I was not being a good father at home because I was working all the time. So the best piece of advice I've ever had from any boss was my boss, who was the managing director of the UK at the time, turned around to me when he knew that I was going through this and said, right, your problem, Ben, is you are literally everywhere. You're at everything. Never switch off. And it's not healthy. I want you. And I'm a bit embarrassed to say this, but he said to me, I want you every Thursday afternoon to go and do the school run. So I don't want to hear from you. I don't want you on email. You can pick up your emails later on that evening. He said, but let's try it for a school term and see if there's any impact on your productivity. And so I, I did it, obviously. And at the end of that term, I was sat down with him having a chat. And he said, Ben, I've got to be honest. He said, I, I don't think it's possible, but I've seen even more productivity from you. But also no one has ever commented, oh, I wonder where Ben is on a Thursday afternoon. That's embarrassing to be told that as a now 45-year-old person, but that was in my late 30s. But it was exactly the lesson I needed to be taught because fundamentally it's a cliche, but it won't say on my gravestone he was a great CMO. So I think no matter how much you are enjoying your job and no matter how successful you're being at your job, you need to remember what your priorities are and you need to make sure you have the right priorities in life. And that's not it's all about personal or it's about work. It's having the right balance. And no one can say what that balance is that's down to you but getting it wrong is really really easy and I always watch out now for any signs of people in my teams where I start to think that balance is going wrong because uh, it is really important that you try and get that balance right that'd be my most personal learning and personal low career low professionally would be unfortunately as I, as I said six months after joining Dunelm my role was scrapped and that was incredibly hard to take because I had joined off the back of some incredibly positive conversations with the exec, with the board. And I started to develop a strategy which had been really bought into, had made some incredible hires and basically felt that the opportunity was just taken away from me. That was very, very hard. It was incredibly difficult on my self-esteem. I remember getting off the train the day it happened and 
my girlfriend came to the station to meet me and I saw her on the platform, she burst into tears. Um, that's the first and only time I've ever cried at work. But it was really, really hard because I just did not see it coming at all. I had only had positive feedback. And one of the things I've learned throughout my career, and I've been in some sticky situations. I've been in, like I said, Satanta went into administration and Justy went through a huge amount of organizational and corporate change, as did Betfair. I've been in lots of challenging situations and I love change. I thrive off change. But I have learned throughout my career that ultimately you are, and this this is really hard to say as a, as a member of an exec of a business to people. And ultimately, obviously, I have a huge duty of care for people. But you also, as an individual, have to remember that businesses are businesses at the end of the day and you are a number at the end of the day and absolutely the most successful businesses and the best businesses will treat you as a great person and they'll give you a platform to thrive and develop but also sometimes your number is up and that's why you hear often the cliche around the average CMO only lasts in the job 15 to 18 months and that's because we're in a really vulnerable position here. We're in a very high-profile position, which is amazing. I wouldn't change anything at all, but it's very vulnerable. It's a lonely place, which you hear a lot, but also you're very exposed because if the business doesn't buy into your philosophy or if the philosophy isn't working, you're often the fall guy for that. And that's the reality of being in marketing. But on the positive side, so many amazing things that come from that. The positives for me massively outweigh any of the negatives. And genuinely, even though the Dunelm experience was incredibly hard, in hindsight, it has really taught me some really valuable lessons. I had some amazing support and conversations from fellow marketeers, from recruiters after that happened. I'm a massive, massive believer in the value of your network and really making sure that Absolutely, your number one job is to build the brand of your business and make your business successful. But your number two job is to make sure you're continually trying to build your own personal brand. And also you're building that network and making sure that within that network, you are giving back as much as you are receiving. And that's one of the reasons why outside of my day job, I also try and mentor people, but I'm also the chairman of a charity called the Lilly Foundation. And I also sit on the board of, of Women in Football, a non-for-profit organization that is dedicated to making sure that football is a more acceptable place for women on and off the pitch. And the reason I do all those things is, one, I love to be busy, albeit I talked about priorities earlier and getting the balance right, but I do have the right balance now. But one, I love being busy, but two, more importantly, I love giving back and I love to see people thriving off support that I'm able to give them. And that's not me trying to sit in an ivory tower saying that I know best, far from it, but it's also about giving back and learning from them and actually learning and taking lessons from those worlds, my charity world and my not-for-profit world and bringing that back into my corporate world has been really valuable as well. So genuinely would advise people Look after your network, harvest your network, make sure you are giving as much to your network as you are taking from your network. I think the common piece there that stands out to me is network and looking out for each other was definitely a theme around those that looked out for you. Now you now look out for others, the power of your network in those really difficult times when business decisions are made, but they impact us personally. And giving back more than we receive is just, you know, it's one of my philosophies as well. So there's lots of learnings, as you said, even in those lows. And thank you so much for sharing those. No, no problem at all. 
it feels really unfair to ask you the last question, Ben, because you've given us so much. You've given us three-dimensional. You've given us lessons about how to make it work. You've given honesty, you know, through your career and, you know, the experiences you've had and what you've learned from them. But we always finish with the question, so I'm going to ask it anyways, if I may. What is that one piece of advice that you would give to marketers of tomorrow? In terms of advice, I would take it right back to what I talked about around one dimensional, three dimensional, which is make the most of every opportunity that you create, whether that's in terms of a campaign that you have launched, keep improving it, keep amplifying it, keep optimizing it, whether it's in terms of your own development. So within your day job, think about how you can get involved outside of marketing, how you can build relationships outside of marketing. Marketing as a specialism touches pretty much every part of every business. So there is no excuse for a marketeer to stay in their lane. Now, obviously, there are ways of doing that and ways of doing that constructively, but think how you can drive positive impact outside of marketing. And then thirdly, it's really easy when you're sat at your desk at 5.30 to go, I'm, you know what, I'm just going to go home. And then every night, every afternoon, every There is always a marketing event somewhere in the country. And every now and then, just say to yourself, I actually need to go to that event. I should go and and get to know those people. It doesn't matter if you're not great in social situations because everyone's in the same boat. But ultimately, the more people that you can get to know, the bigger that you grow your network. And as I said before, the more you can get from that network and give back to that network, that's how you become brilliant in what you do. And brilliant is obviously down to you in terms of what you define brilliant as, but really, really don't underestimate the power of going to those events or speaking to those people or helping those people because good in does definitely generate good out. Love that. And thank you so much for some of your out and your time today. No, no, I've absolutely loved it, Abby. It's been brilliant. Thank you for tuning into the Whole Marketer podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, follow and share. The Whole Marketer is here to support and empower you and your teams with the latest technical skills, soft and leadership skills and behaviours and personal understanding for a successful, fulfilling marketing career and life as a whole. For support, resources and more information on how we can help you to become a Whole Marketer and build Whole Marketing teams, go to www.thewholemarketer.com.